So last week I told you that Peter's concern was not primarily about the effects that the church should have on the broader culture. That these virtues and a promise we talked about last week was primarily for the church community. But that those virtues and the reality and that taking place within the church gives witness to the validity of Christ to the world around us. See, I think we need to remember as we walk through this that our witness beyond the church starts with our unity inside the church. It starts with the work of the gospel among God's people, but it doesn't stay there. It can't stay there. It has to bubble over. So now Peter is going to turn our attention this week explicitly to the topic of Christian witness, to sharing our faith, if you will. So if you want to write down like a main thought or main theme for today, it's this. Live a righteous life born out of hope in Christ that might cause others to ask. Live a righteous life in Christ, born out of hope in Christ, that might cause others to ask. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that we are witnesses. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe in the gospel, you are a witness. So he says this phrase, and we're going to come back to this again later, but it says, be prepared to make a defense. Now, at Refuge, we talk about five kind of core identities, if you've been around here for a little while. If not, uh, I'll say, speak them to you, and that is we're a worshipers, learners, servants, family, and witnesses. Some of you have heard the term missionaries. Um, we've, we, choose, we chose witnesses because um, missionaries is, includes more of a cross-cultural uh, uh, like aspect to it, but witnesses, we're all called to be witnesses, not necessarily all of us are called to be missionaries, but we're all called to be witnesses. These are identities that we have that now because we're in Christ, these things are true of us. They're not just things we do, but they're part of who we are. We're witnesses. This is specifically the one we're talking about today. So let me ask you this question. Have you considered what you're a witness to? What are you a witness to? Peter is helping us Remember what we are witnesses to. Imagine that you were a a researcher, uh, particularly in the field of medicine, and you legitimately found the cure to a form or to multiple forms of cancer. How excited, imagine with me for a moment, how excited and privileged would you feel to get to share that with others? Like, how amazing that would be. How much more so for the Christian who has the cure to eternal life and eternal damnation. How much more so. When we think of cancer and how ravaging and how horrible it is, infinitely more so is eternal death. And separation from God. We are witnesses to the cure to this separation. We are witnesses to the hope of forgiveness and eternal life with God through the cross of Christ and the righteous life he lived. To be a witness means that you have seen it, that you have tasted it, that you have a glimpse of it, you have a measure of an understanding of it, you're a a witness to it. And that's what you and I, who are followers of Jesus, are witnesses to. So let me follow that up with this question. How many of us are actively involved in sharing our hope in Jesus? Now, let me be clear here. What I don't mean is actively involved in sharing religion theory or philosophy or general church niceties like, oh, Jesus loves you, or as, as, as important as that is, or even this, Jesus is better. He's the better friend, the better employer, the better fulfillment. 
listen, I think there's legitimacy to that statement, to fill in the blank there. But he is not our better until he is first our righteousness. So what, what I mean by, are we intentionally sharing our faith? What I mean by that is something akin to, hey, friend whom I care for, there's this man named Jesus who died to pay the penalty for your sin and was your righteousness. And if you believe in him, that you would be right before God. How many of us are actively involved in sharing our hope in Jesus? Oh, why don't we, right? Because all of us are like, oh, daggone it, right? Or at least many of us, I'm sure. And we're only in the intro. Uh, why don't I do this more? I mean, I, my own soul is very convicted even at this moment. Why don't we? I want to deposit of maybe three potentials for you. There might be other reasons why we struggle to share our faith. I think these are three kind of culturally um, observable reasons for us. I think for some of us, we've been conditioned by our culture that the most loving thing to do is to tolerate and let others live their lives, and that that's what's most loving. I think some of us have bought into that idea. We've been conditioned that it's oppressive for us to claim Christianity, its claims, and the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way. That is somehow hurtful to other people. Listen, I see this in my own heart. I have this sense of they will be happier, I'll be happier if I just, if I just leave it alone. But just leave it alone. That's wrong, but it's there. Or maybe two, we fear losing our jobs or rejection or the tainting of friendships. We say, well, this person will never talk to me again or I could get fired. Now listen, I do think we should be as wise as serpents and as blameless as doves and we should be strategic and wise in what we say and when we say it and how we say it. And all the, I'm not, not, that's, he's saying be ready to give a defense. There's a measure of preparedness we'll talk about later. But some of us delay at worst, or at best, or at worst remain unfaithful indefinitely because of fear. Or three, for many of us, Sadly, I think even more sadly, we're not overflowing with the hope of the gospel ourselves. Either we haven't truly tasted the hope of the Lord, or our taste buds are so dull from our fleshly pursuits. But it's just one good taste among the many things that I get to taste, instead of the most tasty thing of my life and my day. Have you ever, uh, I heard a professor ask this in seminary, he ended up writing a book about it, but so have, you ever, uh, have you ever washed an infant in the sink who loves the water? Did you walk away dry? Anybody? No. Or in the bathtub, right? You don't walk away dry, you walk away soaked. Such should be the case for those who have hope in Christ and to those who walk away from us. I should walk away having been splashed and soaked and drenched by your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for many of us, it's not overflowing, and we have to ask the question, why? Something I want to point out to us, I want you to not miss, is who's writing this to us. Peter. If you know much of the story of Peter... The dude was this blazing, brave guy who in the garden, when Jesus is about to be taken away, what's he do? He cuts off the soldier's ear, right? He's brave. And then when Jesus is being hauled away to be executed, what does Peter do? He's a coward. He denies even knowing Jesus, even to a servant girl. He does this three times. 
I mean, think about it, as, as I was reminded this week by someone, think about the pain that Peter experienced when writing these very words. Like to be reminded of his own, I mean, he had to be reminded of his own failure at this moment. Don't fear anything, nor be troubled. What happened to him when Jesus was being crucified? He feared everything and he was troubled. Be ready to make a defense, but I didn't make a defense back then. And sure, we see times of failures in our lives. I think by God's incredible wisdom, His power, His providence, He takes us, even in our brokenness and our sinfulness, our fear and our reluctancies, and transforms us into usefulness, just like Peter. Maybe there are times you share your faith, and then you're reminded of all the times you didn't. The Lord works. The Lord works. It's Him. So we are witnesses. What are some key instructions as to this witness? I think the first thing we need to do is that Peter, understand is that Peter instructs us to pursue righteousness. To pursue righteousness. If you look at verse 13 and then 16 through 17, first though verse 13 Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, a quick caveat, this doesn't mean, of course, pursuing whatever feels good, right? That's not what he's saying. And you're like, well, yeah, duh, Pastor Matt, I I get that. But listen... We all, even myself, pursue our ideals and our expectations very frequently, which is to some measure fine. But when we get hot and bothered or upset or mad because our ideals were not met, what does that reveal? That we were indeed pursuing what feels good to us. So let's be careful. We say, well, duh, Pastor Matt, I know I'm not supposed to pursue what just feels good. It's probably in the mundane and unchecked moments where your pursuit of supposed good, defined by what feels or what seems good to you, happens. That's not what Peter's talking about here. I think we have to look at the context, again, just trying to help us always be reminded of how we study the Scriptures. If you look at the verses before this, in verses 10 through 12, leading into 13, Peter's quoting from Psalm 34, and he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. All right, so, so think about that, right? Let him turn away from evil and do good. Peter's telling us here to be zealots for goodness. Let, so back, back to verse 11. Evil and do, uh, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on what? The righteous. The righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's what we got. A tongue. So this pursuing of good is a tongue that speaks God's truth. It's a person who seeks peace, a person who turns from evil, a person who is righteous. So think from the context, what he means by good is righteous. And we know righteous is the idea of morally right. So don't think Peter is just saying go do acts of goodness, although that would be included underneath being righteous. So we as Christians understand that any righteousness, though, that we have, any fruit of that righteousness, is the fruit of the righteousness of Christ in us from Jesus. So he says here, be zealots for righteousness. That's what he tells us to do. 
Now here's what he means by zealots for righteousness. He means someone who is eager or enthusiastic, right? Enthusiastic. About what? Pursuing righteousness. He's excited about pursuing righteousness. Someone who's striving hard after righteousness. Now he certainly means outward actions, but he also means right motives, that the heart would be in the right posture. Notice what he says here in verse 16. He says a good conscience. It means uh, uh, the, the soul, the, the inner person here. This is that they, that they are pursuing righteousness and not pricked because of the sinfulness in us. I mean, certainly that, that's a good thing that we are pricked and the convicting work of the Spirit, but he's saying here that we pursue a conscience that doesn't need to be pricked in that way. And when we do, when we live in this way, and we are attacked, what's he say? Those people will be put to shame. So, so notice there's this good conscience that's the inner person is right with the Lord, it's righteous, but then clearly there is a demonstration, or there's fruit of that, that would lead to the reviling of others. So, so there's clearly an inward working here that is fruiting outwardly that those around you, particularly here these people that are evil, will see it and despise it. They will revile you. So there's a both and that this zealots for righteousness, enthusiastic pursuit is both inward, that also results in these outward actions. Now, let me give another caveat here. Again, I think it's generally helpful for us to say what we affirm and what we deny. So here's something I would deny, I think based on this text, Peter's not saying that harmful responses validate one's genuine pursuit of righteousness. Let me say that again. Harmful responses do not necessarily validate one's pursuit of righteousness. Just because you feel like you're being harmed in return for what you believe to be righteous is not proof of a pursuit of righteousness. I can't help but give an example that I've seen this over years in ministry, particularly where elders have stood against a person who felt they were righteous in their actions or words, and then classified the response of their elders as hurtful and therefore validation for their stance. Now listen, those elders can be wrong too. I, that's just the reality, and that, that's terrible. But using that as a means of justification. Uh, See, they just don't see what I see. And somehow you have the edge on clarity. And our culture on top of this has conditioned us to believe that if we feel like a victim, that we're now the authority. We're now the boss. We discern what is good, right, wrong, and how the responses should be to us. So just because it's a harmful, it feels like a harmful response. Listen, the the proverb says that the wounds of a friend are good, right? That's going to feel like harm. But it's not harm in the sense he's speaking of here. It's a harm to our flesh, which is always going to feel not so good. Again, this is a danger for all of us. It's only upon the Word of God and the power of the Spirit that we can discern righteousness. We can't discern it just based on, you're going to have lots of people who love you because of your righteousness and lots of people who hate you because of it. So let me ask you this question. Are you actively involved in the pursuit of righteousness? Are you actively involved in the pursuit of righteousness? Now, now let me give a clarification point. I, I, Peter does not mean that you are a judge standing around making sure everyone around you is righteous, okay? Certainly there's value to us 
assessing and working and loving the people around us. There is, there's value to that, so I don't want to dismiss that. But that's not his primary concern, nor what he's speaking of at all, I think, at this point. His primary concern is for our own pursuit of righteousness such that it provokes an explanation from the world around us. That they would look at that and go, why? Now, we have to be really careful as we think about actively pursuing righteousness because we can adopt the things of the world around us or what our flesh says feels good to us and feel like we are pursuing righteousness. Listen, the chances of you stumbling upon a blog that actually represents the Word of God well is very minuscule. But give yourself to studying the Word and let it sift us. Listen, there are things in my life that I'm still discovering that I'm like, wow, where did I get that belief from? That's not in the Word. But this is, and this is going to help shift a bit. Again, our pursuit of righteousness must be defined and, and directed by the Scriptures. Not defined in isolation, nor in our tribalistic echo chambers. But the Word and God's means of helping us through that, through the Spirit, prayer, journaling, those kinds of things through the Word of God, the body of Christ, your elders, and so on, discipleship leaders and such. So are we seeking with zeal the Scriptures in order to, as this part of a pursuit of a life of righteousness? Let me put the question another way. Are you excited to pursue righteousness or does it feel like a drudgery for you? Is it like tension? Like, ugh! Listen, pursuing righteousness is a gift because it only happens to, it can only happen for someone who's been set free from their sin. It can only happen for someone who's been made a slave to what? Righteousness. So pursuing righteousness is for someone who's been bought, who's been given new birth, who's been given new passions and new knowledge, they are a slave to righteousness. This is something that is a gift. Now let's go back to the context here and continue here. It says that they will revile you for your good behavior. They'll revile you for your good conduct and your righteousness. Now, now this is scary. And, and, and I, you know, for those of you who know me, I, I'm not an alarmist and I don't, I don't try to be. And, but this, this is getting scarier in our culture. It was certainly scary to them. They could lose their physical lives. But here's what Peter says to them. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can harm you. Look at verse 13 again. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now understand, this is a rhetorical question for which the answer is no one. But then in verse 14, the very next verse, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. Peter, you sound like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Nothing can harm you, yet they'll revile you. So they're going to do things that are going to spur fear in you. But you said nothing can harm me. You're contradicting yourself. Here is what I believe Peter's point is, is who is there to harm you? Have no fear. Look at the context. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to look, look at the scriptures. Look at verse 15. He goes on. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the what? What's he say right there? The hope that is in you. So there's this, this hope that is in us, which, which we know just is, is this future life with God because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 
And in just a few verses, Peter is going to talk about redemption through Jesus. So that's going to happen in verse 18 and 19. So there's this redemption through Christ. The hope is that we would avoid the ultimate harm as the payment that we owe for our sin. That's the harm that Peter is speaking of, namely, eternal separation from God and eternally experiencing his just wrath upon us. That is harm. It's justified harm. And Peter is saying this, if you have new birth, this new knowledge, new passions, your conduct will be the pursuit of goodness. And when that's the case, that's evidence of God's saving work in your life. And when that's the case, who can harm you? No one. No one. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because God's work of redemption is in you. But here's the deal. Even though God's eyes are on the righteous, as we saw in Psalm 34 and quoting here, it may nevertheless be God's will that the righteous suffer at the hands of those who are offended by God. That suffering, even momentary harm, is likely. I don't know why I continue to be surprised by this. The scriptures make it very plain and clear. Suffering is the way it is in this world. It doesn't mean it's good. It just means it's what it is. It is what it is. We have this idea, I think, for many of us, that if I do good, then I will avoid suffering. So if I just keep a balanced schedule, then I'll feel good about my day. Or if I just say the right things to my neighbor, we can maintain friendship. Imagine Christians are equally vulnerable to the brokenness of this world just as anyone else is. Christian families have kids with short-term and long-term illnesses just like any other family in this world. Christians suffer financial uh, suffering and such just like anyone else in this world. Suffering is the way it is in this world. But also there is suffering specific to Christianity. There's suffering specific to those who follow Jesus. If you suffer for righteousness sake, Peter says here you are blessed. I think when he says you are blessed, what he means is you will not suffer ultimately the wrath or death due for your sin. But you're blessed. When you suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. It is evidence of God's redeeming and securing eternal work in you. You are blessed when you suffer for righteousness sake. Certainly there are many ways in which we suffer or can suffer for being Christians, abstaining from socially acceptable practices. What, when we do abstain from those things, it indicts the society around us. Or things like espousing Christian homes, like we talked about in First Peter, or teaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as only true salvation, eternal salvation can happen through him. That's an indictment on our world. And when we do these things, we face being harmed. Emotional harm, mental harm, financial status harm, and so on. But Peter reminds us here Now hear me, I know we don't particularly love this phrase, but suffering is God's will. Suffering is God's will. If it happens, it's God's will. If it doesn't happen, it's God's will. 
Let me quote someone. If suffering is within God's will, it is also within God's sovereign control. And thus, Christian suffering is determined not by the will of one's adversaries, but by the will of one's heavenly Father. What could be more comforting? Knowing that I have a Father who loves me, who is directing with infinite precision the affairs that are happening in my life this very moment. This should bring us great comfort. So Peter says, have no fear. You cannot ultimately be harmed. I think part of our struggle here, and if I could be really transparent with you, at least my struggle with this passage is I've fought lots of fear, even this past week. It's that oftentimes I, and I think we, care more about our security and the lack of harm and the things that we can see and touch at this very moment than we do about our security through Christ for eternal salvation with God. So we care more about the little things that we feel like could slip through our hands right now. I can't get my eyes off of these things. Or we honor these things that we can hold in our hands more than the Christ who resides in our soul. I want to encourage you with this. It's in these moments, though, that we must be reminded that Peter, too, as Jesus was going to the cross, there were things in his hands that he thought were more important to hold on to than what was eternally secured for him by the work of Jesus. And so he denied, but then what did God do? He kept Peter, he protected Peter, and he made him a witness for his glory. And this same Peter says in this passage, be ready to give a defense. All right, look back at verse 15. So he says, no, don't be troubled, have no fear, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, and so on. So he says to us, be ready to give a defense. Now let me give us a caveat as we work through this, and then I'm going to give us six things as it relates to being ready to give a defense. But first is caveat. I don't think Peter's aim here is primarily the field of study called apologetics. I don't, I don't think that's his primary aim here. I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with, with apologetics. That's the study of like defending Christ and faith and so on and so forth. But I don't think that's Peter's aim here. I think Peter is more arguing for a life that demands explanation and you being ready to give it. So let me say again, a life of hope that demands explanation and you being ready to give it. So I don't think Peter's call is, you know, go to Answers in Genesis or read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ or Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You can go read those. Those are great opportunities. They'd be helpful in many ways. Or brush up on your negotiation skills or study philosophy. I don't think that's what he's aiming at. Instead, his call is that our righteous life born out of hope in Christ would cause others to ask and that we would be ready to answer for the hope that is in us. How do we get there? The first thing I think we need to see is that it's a matter of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. It's, a part, it's, it's the soul. That's why he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Then he says, be ready to give a defense. 
He says, don't be troubled, don't fear, but honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here's what he's saying. If you esteem Christ as holy in your hearts, you will persevere in righteousness even while enduring harm. And if he's holy, then you have hope for eternal life. As one person said, the the compelling power of an affection for Jesus Christ. That we would honor him, that we esteem him highly. Do you honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts? Is he esteemed highly? As holy, without blemish, graciously perfect in all the ways that we are not. That he is our Lord. Like, can you, can you esteem him as holy apart from what he does to us or for us? Certainly that's part of the puzzle here. But for a moment, can your mind and your heart linger in the realm of he is holy? He is good. He is morally perfect in all his ways. In his heart, he is perfectly holy, always doing what is good, right, just. Do we esteem him as such? It's a matter of the heart, too. It's a defense of hope, ready to give a defense. It's a defense of hope. But in your hearts, honor Christ. I'm sorry, that was my last point. The hope, a defense of hope, the hope of eternal life with God. We've already talked about this already. But it's the hope of eternal life with God. The hope that one day I will live eternally with God, avoiding ultimate death and destruction that is due to me for my sin. So I think it's really easy, listen, as we're thinking about giving a defense, to get caught up on defending all sorts of things. Sometimes there's a place for that. But he's telling us here, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. What is the hope? Avoiding ultimate death and destruction that is due to us for our sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is that hope mine? The hope is mine because of what Jesus did, of course, because he was holy and he was sacrificed for my sin. Listen, the gospel, let's rehearse the gospel together for just a moment, because this is our hope. That Jesus lived the righteous life I couldn't. He died the death I deserved and was resurrected over sin and death to sit eternally next to God, his Father. And those who believe that Jesus loved them so much that he did this for God's glory and for their good will have his righteousness, receive life instead of death, and will be resurrected to spend eternity with God, their Father. That is our hope. That's the defense for your hope that you have because of what he did. Three, a walk of obedience. It's part of our defense, part of being ready for this defense is a walk of obedience. Being ready to give a defense is not an option, it's a matter of obedience. Now, I know we prefer to be positively motivated to do the things that we should do, but just to make it very clear, this is a matter of obedience. He's called us to do this whether we feel like it or not. Now, certainly he cares about those aspects, and he certainly works to bring about the right affections, but it is a matter of obedience. It's something you have to choose to do. It won't just happen. Number four, it requires effort It requires effort and preparedness. 
This is why I started off with like, I don't think his primary aim here is the field of apologetics. He's not saying, go make sure you read every book so that you can understand the culture and understand epistemological arguments and so on and so forth. There's this preparedness. Preparedness for what? That we would walk in this hope. That this hope be solid. That we feed that I mean, I don't know about you, but like, again, you've heard me say this many times. I can wake up in the morning, spend time in the Word, and my hope in the Lord is secure. And 30 minutes later, where did it go? Right? Amen. A sister back there went, yep. I got another one. Yeah. I have to work to be prepared. It's training our mind and training the, the soul and leading the soul and leading our affections with the truth of God's word. Listen, how much effort do we give to the study and the preparedness for all sorts of other things? Our jobs, our hobbies, our security, our pleasure, even good parenting. What about the scriptures? What about preparedness? Our hope is secure, at least as our believing in it. That's why we sing that song, oh, 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 help my unbelief. Because we need help in that realm. We are desperately in need of God to work in a way that would steady our belief in this hope. A, a side note here for us, as we think about, being, as we think about preparedness, as a part of our refuge communities, we, we always have this session, this time where we think about missions and living missionally. The main goal of that time is encouragement in personal evangelism. That's the main point, that you would be prepared to give a defense to your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your children, maybe your spouse even. That time's not primarily about events. Certainly those are not bad. Your mission time in RefComs, though, should be primarily consumed with conversations about how you are witnessing to and how to take next steps in that. And then the best of events are often those who are birthed out of these personal evangelistic relationships that you've already been discussing. Number five, the call for a defense is a response to a life that is giving witness. It's a call to a life that would give witness. Now I think many of us, it's something I think maybe we've bought into that want to help us kind of dispel for just a moment. I think it happened, this is getting into a little, little bit of my church history nerdiness here, but I think somewhere in the 80s, the 90s, there became this trend of bring people to church so they can hear the gospel. So I'm going to bring my friends to church so they can hear the gospel. And so the average congregant, life became simply about living a moral life and then inviting people to church. Now I think there's a couple consequences to this that were unintentional but rather consequences. The primary gathering in the church became about the unbeliever or the seeker. And two, Christians got lazy in giving a witness. So a couple points of clarification to help us think. How do we move forward? Our main goal on Sunday mornings is not to give a defense for the hope that is in us to the people you bring. But to train you, believer, concerning why you should have this hope and what a life looks like that is born out of this hope. It's to help stir up your hope. It's to help bolster your hope in the Lord. Certainly, I want you to bring your unbelieving friends here and they will hear the good news of Jesus. But don't bring them expecting us to do the job of giving a defense for the hope that is in you. You do that. You do that tomorrow. 
You do that at lunch this afternoon. We're equipping you to do that. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. You go give hope. You give a defense for the hope that is in you. Share it with your neighbor. Share it with your spouse. Share it with your coworker, with your kids. Sometimes we have to share it with ourselves. I know I do. Look at Peter's words here again. He says, ready to respond to what? Anyone who asks. Now, I don't think Paul is, or Peter is limiting it and saying you can't share the gospel unless they ask. But he certainly says anyone who asks, be ready. So let me ask you a real serious question. When was the last time someone asked? You. Meaning they see the hope you have. They just can't explain it or understand it. Maybe they even think you're crazy. Your life is so different or filled with hope that, that they are spurred to ask you to explain it. When were you last asked that? Now, listen, let me be, let me be clear. That just because you've not been asked in a while doesn't mean you haven't been faithfully doing it. Certainly, I don't want to impose guilt on you that you don't need at this moment. There's no guilt for those who are in Jesus. Anyways, he's paid for that. But would you at least ask the question, if they're not asking, is it because I'm not showing? If they're not asking, is it even a reality in me? At least ask the question. And ask those who are followers of Jesus around you. Number six. He says, do so with gentleness and respect. Let me give you literally what he's saying. Don't be a jerk. That's, that's not literally what he's saying. That's just my paraphrase. Don't be intentionally offensive. Listen, the gospel and one's zeal for righteousness will be offensive. Why? Because the gospel indicts the evilness of a person's soul. That's offensive, as it should be. And let me remind us, we don't need to soften that blow. We're not helping anyone when we do so. However, we should seek to say the truth of the gospel with gentleness and respect. Respect, think about each of these terms very briefly. Respect could look like, would mean recognizing that it's a person. Even if they don't agree, it's a person, it's an image bearer. Even if they can't see clearly. Also realizing that they probably believe what they believe, thinking they have good reasons. And good justification for it. They're not stupid just because they don't agree with you. They could be blinded by their sin and so on and so forth. But we can, I think, easily have this like, in, like superiority complex just because someone doesn't agree with us. Now certainly they can struggle with an inferiority complex because we don't agree with him as well. But... They're not less than just because they don't agree with us. So we show them respect, listening to them. Also not being afraid to speak the truth. Next, gentleness. Think of things like meeting them where they're at and trying to take the pace that they can handle or that the Spirit seems to be doing. Being compassionate. Those are words that kind of help surround the idea of being gentle. The best phrase I could come up with of what not to do is, is don't word vomit all over them. That gives you a picture. Don't do that. Matter of fact, don't do that to anybody. But gentleness and respect doesn't mean that we don't say the hard things to hear. 
right? If a doctor knows your diagnosis is rough, is it respectful and gentle for him or her to withhold that information and the cure from you? No, we would say fire the doctor, right? Now that doctor can say it in helpful ways and in the right context and Certainly, there's, there's wisdom there. But it is respectful and gentle to say the truth of the word. Now, the last thing I want to remind us of is this real quick. In verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Right, we are witnesses. Witnesses of the hope we have in Christ that we should pursue righteousness, birth from this hope in Christ that we have such that it would spur others to ask us for a defense. Why do you live that way? Why do you have that kind of hope? And we should be ready, Peter says. And he tells us, don't fear. Don't be troubled. Instead, esteem Jesus highly. Treasure him in your heart and your mind more than what you may or may not have or you may or may fear losing. To see him as Lord, the sovereign ruler over all of our lives, and to see him as holy, the perfect and righteous one. To see him as Lord and the one in whom you are made righteous This is the hope that we have. That's the defense we can give. And as we do this, making sure we're ready to give this defense. So let me end with this question. How active are you in sharing your hope in Jesus? Don't fear. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts, esteem Christ. Honor him to the highest place as your Lord and the only Holy One. Let's pray. Father, we all have esteem problems where we esteem and honor and hold highly things that are good and and worthy of a measure of esteem. But they often eclipse the sole position that Christ alone should hold in our hearts as the esteemed one. And so, Father, I ask that that as we move forward today, as we sing about how great our God is, how, how great you are. And Father, as we sing about our glorious Redeemer this morning, that, that Father, that these things we sing would be a sweet aroma to you, but that they would also help us understand, even experience to some measure, having Christ esteemed and honored as our Lord and as the Holy One. And that in him and him alone is our hope. May we be ready for your glory, for our good, the good of those around us. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Father, may you stir and reinforce and solidify the hope that is in your people. Even in this moment. For your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.